This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. How does Jesus deal with your problems? It's a compelling question. We're going to be looking at two stories in one that give us a window into the answer. If you have your Bibles, get them open. Mark chapter 5, and we're going to pick it up in verse 21. Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. This is God's word. I have problems. You have problems. We all got problems. Wouldn't you like to know what Jesus thinks about your problems? You wake up one morning, you go down to the kitchen table. Jesus is sitting there. You pour him a cup of coffee. You pass him the creamer. You turn to him and say, Jesus, what do you think? How do you see this problem? Well, we've got something in front of us today that's a treasure trove. 
It helps us see some things about how Jesus approaches and deals with the problems we have in our lives today. So here's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at Jesus solving our problems. We're going to look specifically at three aspects to it. The timetable for solving the problems. The correct diagnosis of those problems. And the desired result. The timetable, the correct diagnosis, the desired result. First, the timetable. So Jesus is presented with two patients who have very different medical conditions. One has an acute problem. The other is a chronic problem. Uh, In one medical case, a young girl is on her deathbed and her life is hanging by a thread. In the other, a woman uh, who's been subjected to bleeding for 12 years. So one is not life-threatening and the other is very life-threatening. So let's say you're an emergency room physician. Uh, Two people needing medical attention have come through your doors at the same time. Uh, One walked in with an arthritis flare-up. And the other was wheeled in on a gurney with a gunshot wound to the abdomen. Whom are you going to treat first? Well, of course, the person who's been shot. The person whose life in that moment is hanging in the balance. What does Jesus do? He treats the chronic problem first, not the acute problem. He treats the woman who's been subjected to bleeding for 12 years before he treats the girl on her deathbed. If Jesus was an ER doc... He would have been sued for medical malpractice. He chose to treat the patient with the chronic arthritis before he treated the patient with the gunshot wound. And in our world, that makes no sense whatsoever. How do you explain that? How do you explain it? Jesus' calendar and clock must be much different than mine. Jesus must see time differently than we do. It's very interesting to see how various cultures have different attitudes towards time. We all know 60 seconds in Mequon is the same as it is everywhere else in the world. But people keep track of time in different ways. If you've ever been to a South American country, you've experienced this. My sister once spent uh, quite a bit of time in Bolivia. And while she was there, she received a birthday invitation to a birthday party. And the start time on the invitation was 12 noon. So being a great American, she showed up at 12. What time did the party get started? 3 p.m. 3 p.m. Their clocks and calendars are different than ours. But that's nothing compared to Jesus' clock and calendar. So think for a moment. Is there anything going on in your life you think Jesus should have dealt with last week? Is there a problem or a situation in your life that Jesus is late in fixing? Perhaps the pandemic? Jesus' calendar is not your calendar. His clock is not your clock. But if you had access to Jesus' clock and calendar, you would see he's always on time. Now, why the discrepancy? Why the disparity? Why doesn't Jesus operate on my clock and my calendar? Well, the story begs a million dollar question. And I love it when scripture does this. When you come across these passages that contain this sort of thing. Jairus is the name of the man whose daughter is dying. Here's the question. 
Why does Jairus' household go out and fetch Jesus while his daughter is sick? But once she's dead, they call it all off. Why do they go out and fetch Jesus when she's sick, but they call it off when she's dead? Aren't they making a statement about what they think Jesus is capable of? There's an implied statement being made. Well, Jesus has the power to heal a sick person, but not a dead one. In other words, there's a limit to what they think he's capable of. By waiting, Jesus is saying, look, Jairus, if I heal your sick daughter, I would be doing exactly what you think I'm capable of. But if I raise her to life, I'll be doing a whole lot more than you think I'm capable of. And that's why I'm going to delay. I'm going to delay because I want to show you I'm capable of much more than you think I am. Healing your sick daughter would be pretty cool, but raising your dead daughter to life would be amazing. And it would show you something about me that you don't currently believe. So what in your life is Jesus late in fixing? Whatever it is, this text is your hope. I'm sure you've got a problem. You've got a situation that you wish Jesus would have fixed already, but he hasn't because he wants to show you something. He's capable of much more than you think he is. According to the clock in the calendar that hangs on heaven's walls, Jesus is always going to be right on time. So take a deep breath. He's not late. He's not late. About a year before our scheduled wedding date, my then fiance, my now wife, uh, noticed she had a droopy eyelid. And at the time I was in seminary in uh, the Chicagoland area and she was, she was living on the same campus working on her uh, teaching certification. And over the Christmas break, she had gone home to see her doctor in her hometown of Dayton, Ohio. An MRI revealed that she had a pituitary tumor. So six months before our wedding, she's been informed she's got a pituitary tumor. Now the pituitary gland sits at the base of the brain. And so without knowing much about how this would be resolved, she already had images flooding through her mind of her having a shaved head and scarring all captured in wedding photographs. Bad timing. Really bad timing. Or was it? (laughs) Now, once we were married, we would be on married student insurance, which most of you know is pretty minimal. But for the next six months, she was on her parents' insurance, which was really good. However, she's not in her hometown of Dayton. She's in Chicago with school and field experience to finish up. So getting this taken care of back home in Ohio was not going to be a good option. So we decided to get a referral to a doctor in the Chicagoland area who was on her parents' insurance network. It was a bit of a scary prospect because this was a foreign territory to us. We were referred to a doctor by the name of Ivan Chirik. I remember going with her to uh, her first preliminary exam to meet him. And I had two impressions. The first, he has a very thick Eastern European accent. And the second, he looks really, really old. She noticed the same thing and then immediately started staring at his hands to make sure they were steady. This dude's going to be operating near her brain. She wanted to know if he's 
steady. He had to be in his mid to late 70s. He quickly zips through the surgery uh, and what it will entail in a thick Eastern European accent. And he turns to me partway through what he's, the, the description he's giving of this uh, procedure. And he turns to me, he says, are you smart? Are you educated? How are you supposed to respond to that question? I said, of course I am. Uh, he said, okay, well, he, here's an article. <laughs> he hands me an article, probably about 15 pages long that details the procedure. Uh, I got through the first paragraph. It might as well have been written in Egyptian hieroglyphics. I didn't understand a, th- a word of it. So we get back to campus after this preliminary exam. And what do I do? I start, I start Googling the snot out of Dr. Ivan Chirik. Who's this guy? Who's this guy who's going to be operating on my fiance three months before our wedding? pouring over websites, trying to make heads or tails of this article he gave me. And here's what I discovered. The procedure to remove this pituitary tumor is called a, it's called transphenoidal microsurgery. Now keep in mind, wedding pictures at this juncture are very important to uh, my fiance. Transphenoidal microsurgery requires zero shaving of the head and zero external scarring. I don't want to disgust you with, uh, you with all the details, but suffice it to say, it goes through the nose to take care of this. Dr. Ivan Chirik was the apprentice of one Dr. Jules Hardy. Dr. Jules Hardy was the first doctor in the United States to perform this particular procedure to remove a pituitary tumor. In other words, Dr. Ivan Chirik, my fiance's doctor, had studied under the best, uh, most well-renowned transphenoidal microsurgeon in the country. And yes, covered entirely by her parents' insurance. So what started as a diagnosis that left us questioning Jesus' timing concluded with us astonished at his punctuality. If you could see the clock and the calendar that hangs on heaven's walls, you'd realize Jesus is always, always on time. Second, the correct diagnosis of it. Now, thanks to Jesus' medical malpractice, the girl whose life was hanging by a thread is now dead. Well, Jesus decides to go see her anyway. The scene at the house, once he gets there, is intense. The text says Jesus sees commotion and people crying and wailing loudly. Upon arriving, look at what Jesus says. He says, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. Now, notice the very next sentence but they laughed at him. Now this laughter is not the kind of laughter you get when someone tells a joke. This is a laughter of derision. This is sarcastic, mocking laughter. They see a dead girl. Jesus sees a sleeping girl. That's two different things. It is not that Jesus sees the same problem differently. He sees a different problem altogether. Now don't get me wrong. She's dead. But let's not be guilty of, of, of labeling these, these folks as unintelligent, primitive people that, who didn't know how to take a pulse. That's not the issue. She is biologically dead, but Jesus does not see it that way. It would be one thing if the people said she's dead and Jesus was to say something like, I know she's dead, but hang in there. I've got something up my sleeve. In that case, he'd be agreeing with their diagnosis of the problem. He actually disagrees with their diagnosis of the problem. He does not see a dead girl. He sees a sleeping girl. In other words, in their minds, the problem is A, In Jesus' mind, the problem is B. So what's your problem? What's your problem? Whatever you think your problem in life is right now, 
Jesus may not agree with your diagnosis of it. He doesn't see the same problem differently. He sees a different problem altogether. Sees a different problem altogether. Now, though I'm a NASCAR fan, I know very little about cars. I don't change my own oil. I don't rotate my own tires. My father-in-law, however, on the other hand, was incredibly mechanically inclined. But when it comes to diagnosing a noise from the engine, he was notoriously difficult to work with. His mode of operation was frustrating. I would hop in the driver's seat. He'd get in the passenger seat. I'd turn on the car. I'd point out the mysterious noise and ask him, what do you think that is? What, what, what do you think the problem is? And it was, his reply was always quick and decisive. He'd say, I know exactly what the problem is. And then he'd crank up the radio and he'd say, your rock and roll isn't loud enough. And that would always get an eye roll. He's not being realistic. He's evading the problem. He's pretending it doesn't exist. He's not even being logical. He's being very, very difficult to work with. All of that could have been said of Jesus as he pronounced the girl to be sleeping, not dead. The people would have rolled their eyes at him, accused of him of evading the problem, of being unrealistic, of, of pretending it doesn't exist, of being illogical about it and difficult to work with. Jesus' diagnosis of the problem isn't even close to how they have diagnosed that problem. It's not as if they're saying she's dead. He's saying she's in a coma to them, Jesus' diagnosis isn't even in the same ballpark. Forget left field. So what is your diagnosis of your problem? Maybe you see the problem as, I'm single and I want to be married. I'm working a job I hate. I'm struggling to pay the bills. My marriage is a wreck. I'm overdue for that promotion I was promised. I'm empty and discontent inside. That's your diagnosis of the problem. How would Jesus diagnose it? What ridiculous diagnosis could Jesus give you that might cause you to roll your eyes at him and accuse him of being illogical about it? Maybe he would say, I know you're single. And you think marriage will solve your loneliness, but that's not the problem. The problem is you aren't satisfied in me yet. I know you're working a job you hate, but that's not the problem. The problem is you need to learn to serve others through your work, even though your work isn't what you want it to be, because that's exactly what I did for you on the cross. Or, I know you're struggling to pay the bills, but that's not your real problem. Your problem is learning to trust me more than you currently do. I know your marriage is a wreck, but that's not your real problem. Your real problem is learning to serve your spouse even when you're getting nothing in return because that's the kind of love I've given you. I know you're overdue for that promotion, but that's not your problem. Your problem is learning to trust me that I'm protecting you from something you don't see. I know you're empty and discontent inside, but that's not your problem. Your problem is learning to stop looking for contentment in the approval of people or your accomplishments in life. Maybe you haven't diagnosed the problem correctly. You think the problem is A, 
But Jesus says the problem is B. The only way you're going to be able to live with that without laughing at him sarcastically or rolling your eyes is if you possess a deep humility. That deep humility will persistently whisper to you, you don't know what Jesus knows. You don't see what Jesus sees. You may not have this problem diagnosed correctly, but he does. And he's working on it. Last, the desired result. While Jesus was on his way to the girl on her deathbed, the text says a large crowd followed him and pressed around him. And we've got a feeling for what that might look like today. You can picture a movie star or an athlete of some kind showing up for a big event with, with cameras flashing and, and people pushing and crowding around. That's the picture. Everyone wants a piece of them. They want a piece of them. That's probably what this is like, minus any kind of security that would be present. In the midst of this chaos, the woman who's been dealing with the debilitating chronic bleeding problem sees her opportunity. She forces her way through the mass of humanity, reaches out and touches Jesus' clothes, and she was healed. Now look at the text. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? So Jesus asks, who touched me? And his disciples respond the way any normal person would. What do you mean who touched you? Jesus, everybody is touching you. Everybody's touching you. So what's the deal with Jesus' question? Why does he want to know who touched him when everybody is touching him? Now, Jesus does not ask that question because he doesn't know the identity of the person who touched him. He knows who touched him. He does not ask that question for his sake. He asks that question for her sake. Why? He wants her to come to him and talk with him. He wants a personal encounter with her. He wants a relationship with her. There's a practical application in this. You will not experience Jesus' power in your life without a connection with him, without a personal relationship with him. You don't get Jesus' power in your life without a relationship with him. You don't get to cherry pick Jesus. This is why, by the way, Jesus heals heals blind people, but does not eradicate blindness altogether. He's after something more than just healing the condition. He's after a connection. So fixing your problems is never Jesus' ultimate goal. If it was, he could have let this woman touch him, be healed. Conversation never happens. She goes about her life and all is well. The reason he wants this woman publicly to come forward is to show us fixing our problems is never his ultimate goal. He's after something more. What he wants he gets from this woman. Look at the way she responds. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. And trembling with fear, she told him the whole truth. This is what Jesus wants. When he heals, provides, or blesses you in some way, what he wants is this. 
Like this woman, he wants you to fall at his feet and worship. Like this woman, he wants you to come and tremble with fear, astonished at his authority, his power, and his love. Like this woman, he wants you to tell him everything about you and your life, confessing every detail to him. That's what he's after. See, the reason Jesus may be delaying in fixing your problems is that, that he knows fixing your problems now would not produce that desired outcome of worship, fear, astonishment, and confession. Jesus may wait. He may wait to unleash his grace into your life until he knows it's going to produce the desired effect of awe, astonishment, submission, and gratitude. It may be that if he was to unleash his grace into your life right now, it would not produce that effect because you're not ready for it. So how do we get ready for it? How do you ensure that if he were to fix your problems right now, it would have the desired outcome of making you fall at his feet and worship in fear and astonishment and confession and gratitude? On the cross, Jesus willingly endured a problem. He willingly endured a problem of physical and spiritual suffering as a means to an end. Jesus endured the problem of physical and spiritual suffering in order to resolve another problem. The impending physical and spiritual suffering of lost humanity. Your eternal physical and spiritual suffering. See, the cross shows us the secondary problem was the suffering Jesus experienced. The primary problem was our spiritual death that would leave us banished to hell. Jesus' personal physical and spiritual problem was secondary to his relationship with you. Only when you see that will you be able to look at your own personal problems as secondary to your relationship with him. So how do you ensure that if Jesus were to heal, provide, or bless you in some way, it would bring about the desired outcome, the desired result of worship and submission to him? Look to the cross. Where Jesus elevated his relationship with you above his own personal problems of suffering. Only when you see him doing that, will you be able to elevate your relationship with him above your own personal problems. When you elevate your relationship with Christ above your personal problems, you will be ready to receive whatever healing provision or blessing he decides to unleash into your life. Because then and only then will solving your problems have the desired result of making you fall at the feet of Jesus in worship and submission to him. Let's pray. Jesus, give us humility, patience, and trust. Not to panic when we think you're late according to the clock and calendar that hangs on heaven's walls, you're always on time. Let us never forget that. Give us humility to realize we often don't see our problems accurately. Give us eyes to see our problems from your perspective. 
Jesus, we thank you and praise you that you willingly endured the problem of suffering on the cross in order to restore us to you. The problem of your physical and spiritual suffering was secondary to the problem of rescuing lost humanity. With that in mind, make us worshipers in spite of our problems. Whatever our circumstances may be, I pray we would make those secondary to responding in awe and submission to you. We pray these things through the healing and saving name of Jesus. Amen.